You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Good morning. My name is Lauren Hinserling. I serve here as a gospel communities leader and on the communion team. And this morning we'll be reading 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 7. If you'll turn there with me. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one under the seat somewhere in front of you. All right, 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 7. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Lauren. Church family, good to see you here this Sunday. Hope you are well. If I haven't had the chance to meet you, my name is Shay Sumlin, one of the pastors here at Northway. And we are continuing in our study of First Timothy, this uh, powerful, significant letter in our New Testament, part of really three letters that are grouped as the pastoral epistles, of which this first letter, the Apostle Paul wrote to his young protege named Timothy, who has been installed as the pastor of this church in Ephesus, which is modern day Turkey. At that time, one of the leading influential cities in the entire Roman empire. And he is writing to him because there's a problem in the church. There are false teachers who have snuck in, who have commandeered the church with their teaching, who are pulling the church away from the gospel of Jesus Christ and instead convincing them that their salvation is found in works through the law, not in grace that God has given in Christ apart from the law. And so Paul is writing this and he instructs Timothy, as we've seen so far in the first chapter, that Timothy really has one main goal right now, and that is to shut these false teachers down and instead tether the church, re-tether the church to sound doctrine that lifts up the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is the foundation here and the purpose of the church. Now, having laid that in chapter one, here's what's gonna happen. Starting in chapter two, Paul is going to now lay before this pastor how the church is to therefore be ordered in light of this purpose of proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, how the church is to be ordered in their gatherings, in their conduct, in such a way that leads to the flourishing of the church and the fulfilling of the mission that God has called them to rather than being distracted from it as the false teachers had been doing. Now, let me just stop here for a second and say, let's imagine for just a moment, you have been hired as a church consultant, glorious job. And you have to sit before a, a brand new church in many ways, and you need to counsel them on what they need to be prioritizing first in order to fulfill this mission. Where would you begin? What, what is it that the church needs to begin with and focus on in order to fulfill their mission? Is it, is it starting with preaching about missions? That'd be good. 
Is it, is it focusing around the leadership of the church, getting healthy leadership? After all, we've got these false teachers who are commandeering the leadership. Is it, is it healthy leadership? Do you start there? Is it budget and finances? Uh, is, it, is it spiritual gifts that we need to begin talking about? Is it sin and immorality that needs to be repented of? Is it church membership and the organization thereof? Where do you begin for a healthy church that is to stay on mission. I want you to notice where the Apostle Paul begins as of primary importance, starting here in verse one of chapter two. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. This is where Paul begins. He begins with prayer. The priority of the church in carrying out this mission that they've been called to of gospel proclamation is that of prayer. And this is important. Where Paul's going in chapter two, you need to understand this, especially for where we're getting to next week, uh, which is a pretty significantly debated text in our pop culture days right now. Um, This is important to note. Paul is not tangenting here in some disconnected thought. This is all of chapter two is connected to chapter one. And in fact, verse one of chapter two is connected to verse three of chapter one. Paul began by going, I urge you, Timothy. I urge you. In light of these false teachers, shut them down. Stay dialed into the gospel. And then he explains that. Remember, this is why God sent Jesus in the world, to save sinners. This is why he appointed me as an apostle, so I could go reach sinners. This is the gospel. I urge you. And now he comes and circles back to it in chapter 2, verse 1. First of all, I urge you. This is how you're going to do it. By staying dialed into prayer. And gospel proclamation is your mission Prayer is the engine here that God is going to use. Um, Paul is contending with them, contending with them. If we believe that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, and if we believe there's still a world full of sinners out there that still need to be saved by Jesus Christ, and if we believe that God has designed his church to be the very vessel that is going to carry that message of Jesus Christ into the world, then the place we have to start is on our knees in prayer because we know that apart from God's intervening grace, just as he did with Paul and Paul's testimony in chapter one, verse 13 and 14, and just as God's intervening grace has done with every one of us who've put our trust in Jesus, we know that apart from God's intervening grace, there is no way sinners are going to be saved through mere human effort. It is going to have to be a work of the divine. It is going to have to be God doing it. I don't care how slick your evangelism programs are in your church. I don't care how well articulated you are in conveying the gospel to a sinner. We are going to have to pray and ask God for the salvation of these souls. All, and this is the thrust of this text, all evangelism and missions is is the spoils of prayer. That's what it is. Now, you got to understand, the Judaizing false teachers who were influencing this church at the time, they did not believe 
you needed to pray for all people. Because these particular false teachers were exclusivists. They believed that only the elite, only those who could merit their own salvation were worthy of it. All the sinners, the vile, the wicked, they deserved condemnation. We don't need to be wasting our time by praying for them. We need to focus on us. That's the message that was being conveyed to them. These Judaizing false teachers, they're like Jonah. That the only one who deserves God's compassion is me. But the people that I hate, that I don't like, they don't deserve it. So let's just frame our whole church around that. How's that gonna go? No, Paul understands this is not God's heart. Note the word that Paul uses four times in the first six verses. Underline this, verse one, all people. Number, uh, verse two, all who are on high positions. Verse four, all people. Verse six, Jesus who came and gave a ransom for all. See, the false teachers believed Gentiles should be excluded from the work of God, the salvation of God. Only the Jews and the righteous Jews at that deserved it. They were, they were like um, the Pharisees of old here. They believed that, but, but Paul understands, no, 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 God so loved the world, all, Jew and Gentile, that he sent his one and only son, that whosoever believes, Jew or Gentile, can receive salvation, that this is God's heart and therefore this is who the church should be praying for, not just some people, we should be praying for them all. Now, notice how we pray. Notice the list of types of prayers. He mentioned supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgivings. You need to understand this. These are not meant to be picked apart here for their individual distinctions. These four terms that he uses aren't mutually exclusive. These are all different terms for prayer that is meant by Paul to say, we need to bring everything to the table. You need to bring your supplications, that's your needs and entreaties and requests to God. For the lost, you need to bring your prayers. That's the gener generic term for humbly conversing with God. Your intercessions, that's your intervening for someone. Your thanksgivings, that's your expression of gratitude. All of it, these are overlapping terms meant to show that we're to bring all kinds of prayers in our gathering to the throne room of God for his specific purposes. In verse two, he leads with an example of who some of those all are that we should be praying for, and it is a doozy. You see this in verse two? Who are we to pray for? Let me give you an example. How about we start with kings and all those who are in high positions? Now, I don't know that you and I necessarily feel the weight of what Paul just requested. Consider who the king was at the time that Paul wrote this. Who was the emperor of Rome? You know who it was? It was this guy right here. It's an artist rendition of all the statues and busts that we have of Emperor Nero. And this was not a good dude. And in fact, Nero and in his government at the time, had a pretty bad track record for the church 
First of all, this was a government that legalized infanticide. They didn't even mess around with the debate of abortion. They wanted everybody, go ahead, carry every child to term because we can just wait until after that child is born to decide whether they're worth living or not. And so if you had a child that you didn't think fit the prototype of what Rome wanted, you could just leave your child out for exposure. And so infanticide was legalized by Nero and his government. In addition to that, this is a guy who murdered his, own, his mom. And not only did he murder his mom, he murdered his first wife and he murdered his second wife, which ladies, that's just a tip off right there. <laughs> Probably not a dude we want to be dating in this moment here. He murdered his own stepbrother and other relatives. But most notably, this is a guy in whose government viciously sought after the extermination of Christians. Nero blamed the burning of Rome on Christians. And so as a result, he had Christians burnt and he had them burned alive. He would place them on giant torches and put pitch all over them, light them on fire alive so that they can illuminate his evening garden parties. This is a wicked dude. This was a wicked government. And because persecution had ramped up at this time, the false teachers who had commandeered this church were trying to stir up anger and bitterness and rebellion against Nero and against the government. They wanted to make a call for insurrection from the Christians to fight back against Nero and the Roman government. That's what he's calling for. But notice, it's not what Paul calls for. Paul says, no. Instead, pray for them. You need to spend your time in your gatherings praying for them. Now feel the weight of this. This would be like asking Jews in the 1940s to pray for Hitler. I can see folks going, yeah, I'll pray for Hitler, all right. I got some prayers for that dude. But Paul, understand this, what Paul is saying thus far in this letter is he has contended that the purpose of God in Christ in the world is to save sinners. And if the purpose of the church is to proclaim that message that God has come to save the wicked, not just condemn them, then an insurrection against Rome from the church wouldn't be in keeping with the message that they proclaimed. Now, don't confuse this here in this section with Paul being a pacifist. We already know from both Peter and John in Acts chapter four, there is a time and a place for civil disobedience but our mission, the thrust of our mission as a church is not insurrection, it is salvation. That's the thrust. Instead of using your church gatherings to stir up protest against Nero and his governing authorities as the false teachers were doing, instead, pray for them. Ask your heavenly father to do for them what you know he did for you. The result of which, that if God would answer that prayer, is in keeping with, as he says at the end of verse two, that we may lead as a church a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. 
Now, please understand, peaceful and quiet in this context is not referring to the church leading a sheltered and threat-free life. Paul knows that doesn't exist. Jesus has told us, if you're going to follow him, you're going to suffer. But suffering, according to Jesus and according to the apostles, both Paul and Peter, tell us that suffering should be in accordance with living a godly life. You're being persecuted for truth and righteousness. You're not to be persecuted because you are out there causing a riot and insurrection. That's a different kind of persecution. Instead, it's praying that as a part of God's intervention with the governing authorities, it would pave the way for favorable conditions whereby much of the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, would coincide with the shalom of God, the peace of God. And it is keeping with our mission so that the church in that mission can go unhindered. Similar to what Jeremiah was praying for for Israel when they were in Babylon in Jeremiah 29, when he said, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile under Babylon and pray to the Lord on its behalf because it's in its welfare that you're gonna find your welfare. So in doing so, the church would not be marked as a result by chaos and insurrection and rebellion as the false teachers' messages were stirring up in the church, but instead it would result in us living godly and dignified lives. Now think about that for just a moment. Both those words are conveying the idea of carrying a kind of respect that is in keeping with the very message of grace that we have preached. In other words, you and I are not to be out there writing checks with our mouth about the gospel of grace in Jesus Christ that the conduct of our lives cannot cash. There shouldn't be a hypocrisy with us. We shouldn't be calling people to this message of salvation in Jesus Christ, and yet we are living lives that are ungodly and undignified, not in keeping with the faith that we proclaim. So let me just stop here for just a moment. Can we do just a little bit of inventory on this piece right here? Two questions I'd put before us based on this text. Number one, are you and I, as the church of Jesus Christ, are we being faithful to pray, to really pray for the salvation of sinners? And, and let's just use the example here. Are we faithful to pray even for our own state and local governing authorities, national authorities? Are we praying? Now, I could say you, start, you put, start putting certain names on it, certain political positions on things. It makes this a little less ethereal, makes it a little harder, doesn't it? So you're going, you really want me to pray for so-and-so? Let me tell you where this got tested for me last year in a very real way. I got asked to come in and pray over the Dallas Commissioner's Court. So here's what that means. I'm going to stand a few feet away. Uh, this, the county of Dallas is broken up, in case you don't know, it's broken up into four districts. And there's a commissioner over each district. Andy Summerman is the one who's over the district that our gathering happens to fall in this space. Uh, Teresa Daniel is another. John Wiley Price is another one of those. And Elba Garcia is another one. These are the four commissioners. And they are all overseen by one county judge, Clay Jenkins. And so I get invited to come stand before this whole council and pray over them. Well, if I could be real with you, I don't know that I line up with every single person that's on there. I got some, some HSOs. I got some hot sports opinions. 
uh, on a couple of folks and I had a couple of their policies and things I don't really agree with. And, uh, and so here I am and I'm going, okay, all right, Lord, I've read, I've read first Timothy, here we go. And as I stood before them, what I prayed for in my heart is that the Lord in this moment would not fuel me with my debates over policies and how COVID was run or whatever other policies happen in the County of Dallas. In this moment, I asked for the Lord to fuel me with compassion for these men and these women and reverence for the position that they hold because Romans 13 tells me that all governing authorities aren't there by accident. God has allowed them in those spots and they are there to steward God's design for the good of civilization as God has intended it. And so I prayed twofold, one for the salvation of each one of these, that they would come to know the Lord Jesus Christ as their savior. And I prayed that they would steward their positions in keeping with how God has designed those positions to be stewarded for the good of all of us and everyone in the County of Dallas. And so you never know when you're going to be put before someone that you may actually disagree with, but as a church, this is our role. And let me just tell you, 2024 is coming. It's here. It's already on us. Some of you are going to be asked to pray either for Trump or for Biden. And you're going, no, 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 no. Can you be reminded of what the first century church felt in this moment when they were told they need to pray for Nero? You can do it. We can do it. We're called to do it. This is the mission God has given us. And then I would just ask us, secondly, not only are we praying for those folks, do our lives match up with the very mission that we proclaim? Is there anything inconsistent about our lives as Christians that would lead others to believe that we don't really respect the very word and the message of God that we proclaim? Let me just get real frank for us in a moment here. The word dignified that's used here, godly, is our relationship with God dignified is the expression of that. And it literally is a word that means grave or serious, that we would take with sobriety the fact that God's grace has saved us, cleansed us of all unrighteousness, and he has set us apart for his glory. Now that in obedience, fueled by grace, we would live lives in accordance with God's word. Are we living lives that is in accordance with God's word, that is godly and dignified. Because you cannot, you cannot, just to put some flesh on this, you cannot be proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ, calling sinners to turn from their sin to Jesus Christ while you are still shacking up with your boyfriend and your girlfriend. While you are still slandering others, no different than the folks that you're trying to reach with the gospel that you and I are living in hypocrisy and inconsistency knowingly, knowingly. I'm not talking about struggling and striving under God's grace for purity and righteousness, but I'm talking about just giving ourselves over and preaching one thing with our mouths and then walking out the door and bowing down and walking in rebellion according to our lifestyle. May we live in accordance with it, godly and dignified, so that there will be there will be affirmation in our witness. Church, this is why we are to pray in our gatherings because this is the mission of God that he's called us to. And by the way, just some low-hanging fruit, this is why we pray. Every week in our gatherings, we have a prayer block where we rotate between local church, our church requests, 
our local Dallas requests, DFW requests, and then global requests that we want to put before the Lord. That's why I didn't even time us praying for the shanks today, but I was like, yes, Lord, you just line that bad boy up right there because this is good. This is in keeping with what God wants that we would be constantly mindful and praying for uh, those in Glasgow who could come to know the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ as we send our own there. In addition to that, this is why we pray the first Monday of every month, which by the way is tomorrow, worship and prayer. This is why we gather as a church so we can get on our knees and pray and ask God to do what only God can do. Coming up the week leading up to Easter, we're gonna call our church to a week long of 24-7 prayer where we're grabbing different slots so that for 24 hours a day, for a full week leading up to Easter, we are interceding as a church before the throne room of God because this is good and this is right. Notice what it's in keeping with in verses three and four. This is good. It's, it's pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, some get hung up here with attention. Go, wait a minute. Okay, help me out here. If God's desire is that all people should be saved, how does that reconcile with Paul's previous words in Ephesians and Romans about God only choosing some? And that's a good question. But understand, theologically speaking, Theologically speaking, desire is not the same thing as decree. And with God, both can coexist at the same time and not be in conflict. There are two main words that are commonly used in Greek for desire. One is the word thelo, which means to intend as a wish. And the other is bulamai, which means to carry out a predetermined plan that is in accordance to a wish. The word that's used here is thelo. It's just the general heartbeat of God. It's the desire of God that is in the character of God to save. And and you see this all throughout. Even Peter reaffirms this in 2 Peter 3. The reason why God's slow in condemning is because he's not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. That's God's heartbeat. Ezekiel in the Old Testament was proclaiming the same thing. Ezekiel 18, 23. God has essentially no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Instead, his desire is that everyone would turn from their sin and turn back to him. That is the heartbeat desire of God. And, And even though, theologically speaking, in his sovereignty, his decree is towards his elect. But these do not conflict with God. Paul's point, because we don't know who the elect are, only God is, it's his personal business. For you and I, our mission coincides with God's heartbeat. And that is to go and proclaim with an appeal of the gospel to all, that all would turn. That is the mission which we're sent for. All people, all places would turn from their sin and turn to Jesus and be saved. And specifically in doing so that they would know this truth that is in verse five and six, this beautiful, concise body of truth that we hold to. Listen to this. For there is one God, there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Now note very carefully here, the three main components in this body of truth. Number one, what we believe is that there is one God. There's one God. 
Every Jew memorized this foundational truth and recited it every day in Deuteronomy chapter six, known as the Shema, which is a word that means to hear. And it says this, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. In other words, there is no pantheon of gods that exists in which you get to choose your own adventure as all Greco-Roman culture was doing. Likewise, we are not to have various acceptable religions that are all over the planet right now and go, that's okay. That's just how they do it in the Middle East. And this is how we do it in the West. No, there is only one God who is to be worshiped by all, by all. And this destroys the Judaizing false teacher's belief that Gentile sinners were to be excluded from the worship of God that only the pious, righteous Jews were to be accepted by God. No, there's one God, and he's the God for both Jews and Gentiles, all of them, not just of some. Paul said the same thing in Romans chapter 3, verse 30. Since God is one, then who will justify the circumcised, that's the Jew, by faith, that's how God's going to justify them, by faith, and the uncircumcised, that's the Gentile who's also going to be justified by faith. Why? Because there's one God over all. We don't have the God of the Jews and the God of the Gentiles. We have one God who is over all. Now, some folks may go, okay, I believe there's only one God, but certainly there's multiple paths to that God to which Paul then says, no, I beg to differ. There is only one mediator between God and man, and his name is Jesus Christ. In Greco-Roman culture, They had mediators and arbitrators, just like we do in our culture in both business and law. They were known as mesites, and they had to fulfill two conditions in order to be a mediator. Number one, that mediator had to represent both sides with total satisfaction. Very hard thing to do. But secondly, they had to bring these two sides together at whatever expense to the mediator's self. Paul says when it comes to a holy God and a sinful humanity that cannot be reconciled, they're too far apart. They cannot be reconciled. There is only one qualifying mediator that has ever been given who can satisfy all those conditions perfectly. And it is Jesus Christ. In his incarnation, he came as both fully God representing the fullness of God and fully man representing us. And we see that in his coming, thirdly here, so number one, there's only one God. Number two, there's only one mediator. And thirdly, he came to do what no other mediator could do, which was to give himself as a ransom for all. He came at just the perfect time in human history when God chose to give us this testimony the good news that God has found a way to bring us together and whereby at great cost to himself, Jesus, the mediator, substituted for us through death on a cross, whereby he could absorb the just wrath of God that was on us for violating God through sin and he could satisfy the need for mercy and rescue in love for a sinful humanity that had fallen short. Jesus met them both perfectly. 
And in verse seven, Paul concludes this argument here by circling around now to his commission and the authority behind this letter, the weight behind it. He says essentially, hey, this testimony we've been talking about, about Jesus and God's great purpose in the world of sending Christ to save sinners like us. He says, this was why I was appointed as a preacher and an apostle, one who's been sent. And he says, I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. I'm a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Paul inserts, by the way, that parentheses, hey, I'm, I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying because he's directly addressing the accusations of the false teachers that said, Paul doesn't know what he's talking about. He has no credibility. And as we've already learned in chapter one, we see it was Jesus himself who appointed Paul. Paul didn't appoint himself. Jesus appointed him to this very ministry of proclaiming salvation, not just to the Jews, but to the Gentiles as well. Both of them, both of them. Why? Because this is in keeping with the truth that there is one God, one mediator in Christ Jesus who gave his life as a ransom for all, all sinners, Jew and Gentile, not just some. And so church, we get to the end of this. This is a, this is a very short little text we got today. It's very clear. Why is it here? Why is this text here for us? This text is here to remind the assembled church of what is of first importance in our gatherings in fulfilling the mission that God has called us to to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. Our first importance is not to spend our time in this gathering wrangling about church politics. Our time is not to be spent here debating over human traditions. Our time is not meant to be spent here entertaining everybody's various speculations in this room. Our job is not to spend our time quarreling with one another over tertiary issues of the culture that we are in right now. We're not to be preoccupied with those things primarily in our gatherings. Instead, we are to serve the mission of God in the world which is to save sinners by us as a church going and declaring to them the truth about the person and work of Jesus Christ, that they may turn from their wicked ways, put their trust in Jesus Christ for their righteousness and receive his mercy and forgiveness. But that cannot happen. And that will not happen apart from the intervening grace of God, which is why we have to pray. I've said it before, prayer, the absence of prayer in a church or in a Christian's life indicates the presence of pride that you or we feel we can do it on our own. We don't need God. But there is no salvation apart from God's intervening grace and his power. So we must pray. Prayer indicates the presence of humility and dependence upon God for what only God can do. So we are called to pray. I've said it before, evangelism and missions for the salvation of souls is simply the spoils of prayer. 
Now, I am so thankful. I really am thankful because I don't do this perfectly at all. I neglect to pray in so many different ways. But I am so thankful early on in my ministry, God showed me viscerally the power of prayer when it comes to the salvation of souls. Um, I share this story when I arrived uh, at, at the University of North Texas. I was a I was a baby Christian. I'd only been Christian a few years. I really hadn't been discipled. I hadn't been formed in the word of God. And I showed up on that campus and I thought the best thing that I can do for my Christian faith um, as such a young believer is to pledge a fraternity. I thought that is gonna be the best thing that I can do. And I didn't pledge just any fraternity. I pledged Sigma Nu, which at the time at the University of North Texas had been kicked off campus for a bar brawl. Um, And here's the thing. We still got to function as a fraternity, but with no governing rules over us. That is a powder keg for disaster right there. And that's when I pledged. And I came in, not just as any pledge, I came in as a triple legacy. My stepfather uh, had pledged, it was a, a member of Sigma Nu at the University of North Texas. My oldest brother was the president of Sigma Nu at the University of North Texas. My middle brother was a Sigma Nu at the University of North Texas. So I came in under all of that. And I got in there and I found out real quick as a young believer, ooh, this is going to be a test of my faith. And I got crushed. My hypocrisy was on display. I had no witness of credibility right out of the gate. And God was kind to pull me aside and say, Shay Sumlin, if you don't stand up for me in this fraternity right now, you're going to get eaten alive. It is better to get out or stand up, but you cannot ride in between. And he provided a guy by the name of Jared Peterson, who was on staff with Campus Crusade for Christ, who had been tasked to try to penetrate the Greek system of UNT, as to which point at that current moment, nobody had really done And he grabbed me of all people and said, hey, what if we got together and and we led a Bible study in your fraternity? I said, do you have any idea who you're talking to right now? Like, I am not the best candidate for this position. He goes, no, we're going to trust the Lord. So I stood up in front of 180 of my fraternity brothers and I invited them all to come to an evening Bible study so we could commune with Jesus Christ together this evening. You just might need to forsake going out to your party this evening and instead come to this delightful presence of God. And um, you know how many people showed up the first night? Zero. Not one person showed up to this thing. And so Jared pulled me aside. He said, man, we we can only do this through prayer. I want you to meet me Wednesday morning at 6 a.m. and we're going to get on our face and we're going to ask God because I think there are elect in this fraternity that he wants to bring out. So we're going to pray and we're going to beg him. We got on our face that next Wednesday, prayed and prayed. The following um, Monday night, Um, guess how many showed up? One, one, my, one of my pledge brothers who was mandated by his, his big brother in the fraternity that he had to do a charitable service. And so he sent him to show up (laughs) and Mike showed up and we shared the gospel with him. And that evening he put his faith in Jesus Christ. I have never seen a conversion closer to what I see in the Apostle Paul where like scales fell off, worst gospel presentation ever. 
scales fall off. He sees the weight of his sin, the mercy of Jesus, and turns to Jesus, goes, I'm in. I want to follow him. I'm ready to forsake all my ways. This was Goldschlager drinking Mike um, that I knew as a partier, and he wants to now give his life over to Jesus. And I'm, I'm looking at him like, are you serious? Are you really want to do this? I was so blown away. My circuits were just fried. Fast forward the tape, just incidentally, Mike became my best friend, my college roommate, and he ended up being a co-pastor with me out in Fresno, California for a while. Crazy story. But in that moment, I didn't know what God was doing. This is amazing. And we, he then joined us the next Wednesday. And we got on our face and we prayed. We said, God, only you can do this. And we just kept praying. By the end of the semester, we had 40 guys from our fraternity coming to this deal, giving their lives to Jesus, one after the other. Like, I didn't, I didn't know, I didn't have a term for this. I had never done drugs, but if this is what cocaine felt like, shooting through the body, I don't know. This was crazy what God was doing. And then we just kept praying. We kept God asking God for more. Like, don't stop here. It's not just Sigma Nu needs it. There's a whole Greek landscape. So the next semester, we went and invited all the fraternities and sororities, went to every chapter meeting, invited them to do a six-week study in the Song of Solomon, shrewd bait right there. Come on in. And we prayed and we prayed. You know how many showed up? 150 showed up on the first night. And that evening, we shared the gospel and men and women put their faith in Jesus Christ. I could not believe my eyes what God was doing in answering these prayers. Like, it wasn't me, it wasn't Jared, it wasn't anything slick going on. It was the power of God taking some humble people, said, you want it, I'm gonna give it. I'm gonna give it. And he poured out, I saw dadgum revival in this little window at the University of North Texas where I saw presidents of fraternities and sororities getting saved, starting their own Bible studies in these deals, evangelizing and reaching folks. Great, I mean, just one after the other. I was so impacted by it. I was waiting tables. I waited tables for Razu's Cajun Cafe. Anybody ever been there? Been, did that eight years. And I would sit out before every shift. I'd pray up on a hill overlooking and I would just pray, God, just open doors. There are men and women in here who need to know Jesus save them, God, save them. And he answered that prayer. I saw men and women come to faith in a restaurant. And I'm, I'm telling you, I'm up here. I'm not just trying to share a story that was 30 years ago or 20 years ago. I'm telling you a story. I saw God do it then. I've seen him do it since. And I'm praying he would do it now. Praying he would do it now, right here in the city of Dallas. It would take a bunch of humble, dependent people like you and I. And we just get on our face. We'd cry out to God. God, answer this. Why? Because there's one God and one mediator. His name is Jesus Christ who came to give them ransom. And he came because this is the heart of God is to save sinners. And we must pray. So church, here's what I want to invite us into right now. I don't want us just to hear this word right now. I want us to lean into it. I want to invite the band back up here. I'm going to invite one of our elders to come lead us in communion in just a moment. And I would love for us to just take a moment right now and let's just spend some time crying out to God. Take your supplications, your intercessions, your prayers, your thanksgivings, and let's bring them to him right now. Maybe for some of you, there's someone in here right now the Holy Spirit has burdened you for who's far from the Lord. You want to pray for their salvation. Pray in faith. Pray in faith that God would save them the way that he saved you. Not because of anything that you've done, but because of sheer mercy and grace. Maybe for some of us in here, we need to spend some time asking God to empower us to be evangelistically faithful, to be obedient, to go actually share the gospel. This week, maybe with that very one that we're praying for. Maybe we need to spend some time praying right now 
that God would convict us of our sin, if there are any of us who are, who are not walking in righteousness according to God's word, that he would convict us so that we wouldn't be going and sending mixed signals to the very world that we've called to reach, that he would set us apart in godliness and dignity. Maybe some of us in this room right now, you just need a heart of gratitude. Just need to stop and thank God for how he broke through and saved you. Let's just take a moment here and let's pray over those things. I'll close us and then we'll spend some time in communion together. Oh God, our savior, king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only true God. God, we thank you that your mission of saving sinners is only in keeping with your nature, which is a God of mercy and grace who wants to save. And God, we thank you that we are the fruit of that mission, Lord. Those of us in this room who've tasted, who've tasted of your salvation, God, help us not to get so far away from that that we can't be fueled with the same compassion to see others not just even, but especially so, our very enemies. Lord, we just pray that you would do a work in our day, a work that can only, only prove emphatically that it was you who did it, that you would break through. I pray for even skeptics in this room today, such as myself, who just see somebody that we know that's so far from God, we think there's no way you could do it. God, would you do it? Would you do it this week? Would you break through in such a radical way? There'd be no other conclusion that God is alive on his throne. God, would you humble us in dependence as a church to unashamedly seek your face in these things, to pray continually for your mission to go forth, the gospel of Jesus Christ to go forth and to save sinners. God, would you convict us of our sin, that there would be nothing in our lives that would present a contradictory message to what we are proclaiming. Would you purify your church? Would you humble your church? That for all of our days as Northway Church, we would be about our Father's business. We pray for your glory, for their salvation, for all of our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Northway Church. A podcast should never replace gathering with God's people to worship Jesus. So we want to encourage you to be part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 a.m., 11.15 a.m., and 4 p.m. and would love for you to join us as we encounter the truth, beauty, and goodness of Jesus.